Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Bible in a Year reading plan. We also have PDFs available for download on our website, grove.church. Yes, and as questions arise, uh, feel free to send them in to us at infogrove.church. You can shoot us an email to that email address, or you can direct message our Facebook page at We Are the Grove Church in Washington State. Uh, so you're welcome to email us the, or direct message our, us those questions. Uh, I've really enjoyed the questions the last several weeks. I yeah. think it's been fun to kind of hear something. Even the question that we're going to navigate or ask, answer today uh, is just a really good question. I think it's fun to to think critically about what we're reading and what we're seeing in Scripture. And so uh, keep sending them in. Thanks for sending them in so far. I look forward to that today. As far as resources we're using today, um, really it's just the uh, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Dictionary by J.D. Douglas, Merrill C. Tenney, and Moises Silva, which we use pretty frequently. Yeah. Um, and then I'll just put um, the internet generally. <laughs> so there's just a lot Wikipedia. of... Wikipedia? No, just kidding. Not, not Wikipedia. Not, not Wikipedia. Well, I did look on Wikipedia, but I verified. Um, but it was uh, a lot of timelines is what I was looking mm. at for this episode. And there's a reason for that because of what we're talking about. Because today we will be talking about the intertestamental period. What the heck is that, Evan? So I realized like we talk about it a lot and we kind of make in passing references to things that happened. And so I thought it'd be really helpful because right now in the Bible reading plan, we're going through Matthew... Um, which is the first book of the New Testament, and mm-hmm. we're going through Leviticus, and so we've which already is one of the best books in the entire Bible. Oh yeah, um, but with, if with, you're into that sort of thing, <laughs> with with because with that being said, like we've done it, we did an episode on Leviticus last year, and mm-hmm. we've already done an episode on Matthew, um, and so I was looking through, I was thinking like, well, maybe we'll do a character episode on Herod, and then I thought, well, let's just talk about the Herodian kings in general, and then I was like, wait a second, let's just talk about what happened, like what the heck happens from the close of Malachi. To the, the birth of yep. Jesus. So everything everything in between. Yeah. So when we say intertestamental period, we're talking about the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right. Uh, Roughly so 400 years. Yeah. So it's, and it's, it, you're right. It is something that we, we allude to and, uh, you know, in passing kind of reference and talk a little bit about, but we've never actually spent time to actually talk about what happened during this period of time. Um, so it's, I think it's it's actually kind of a fun topic, I think, this week. Oh, yeah. Um, even though it feels a little like, huh, interesting. So, well, it's funny too, because like, I, I mean, I love history. Like my second what? love, you do? Just to, kidding. my second love to the Bible is, I don't know, it's a tie between history and like maybe Lord of the Rings, but like, I just, I love reading and just consuming that kind of information. So I was definitely nerding out about just kind of being able to talk about, uh, talk about this stuff. And it is cool to see too, how um, Israel, Israel as a nation is fairly insignificant when it comes to, if you factor out religion and spiritual history. If, like, if you take that away from the from the uh, the equation, Israel's just a small country on the east of the Mediterranean, and mm-hmm. that's kind of all it is. Um, but it's cool to see how, so, like so many of like, th- these are major events that you will all know about when we talk about them and how Israel factors into them. So it's kind of cool to think about. Yeah. And before we get started, just to say this, because um, we're recording on Thursday, it was Evan's three-year anniversary yesterday. So happy Ooh, late anniversary. Thanks, Aaron. Evan and Ashley. Shout out to Ashley. Yeah. Uh, so this podcast will obviously drop on Sunday. Uh, they will have had a weekend uh, celebrating we will, their anniversary. We'll be but, probably driving back from uh, Ocean Shores when you're listening. Just want to say happy anniversary. Thank you, man. Uh, so we'll wrap up here with the end of the Old Testament a little bit, just kind of do a bit, little bit of recapping. So at the, ends of, at the ends of Kings and Chronicles, we see that the kingdoms of Israel and Judah have fallen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, we call it Samaria a lot as well, falls to Assyria, and then Judah falls to Babylon. So really important moments. Uh, if you remember, yeah. like as we were reading through um, Jeremiah, 
is talking about it a bunch. He's writing about the whole book of Lamentations is basically lamenting the fact that ba- uh, Jeremiah is crying about it. Yeah, that Jerusalem had fallen to Babylon. Mm-hmm. I almost said that Babylon had fallen. But what? And then we have Daniel is taken from these exiles mm-hmm. uh, and he's taken to Babylon to become a main prophet there. So all of this is kind of happening. Eventually, Babylon would fall to Persia. So the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon and take over the Babylonian Empire. It's very big. Uh, the Persian Empire, that is. I mean, the Babylonian Empire was big, but the Persian Empire is even bigger. Um, and so, But there will be bigger empires, just you wait, as Daniel prophesies. Yep. So all of that's happening. Um, and then the Old Testament ends with the Persian kings actually being pretty nice uh, to the Jews, all things considered. Yep. Um, I mean, there was that time where he almost allowed... Uh, a genocide, but you know, thank way to go Xerxes, uh, way to go Esther, I should say. Esther, good job. <laughs> but uh, to prevent that, um, but the I think it's Darius the first is the king who lets uh, Nehemiah go back. Um, if it's yeah, I think it's Darius. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, but they're they're being relatively kind, uh, much more kind than the Babylonian kings, um, and much more kind than we'll see as the than the Greek kings. Um, but they go back, and that's where we get Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, Esther. And then Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah, I think, are all the books that take place in the in this period, which is kind of the Jews returning back. And this is when we also see it's called Second Temple Judaism. Uh, it's called this because it's the Second Temple. So there's the First Temple what? built by Solomon. No, that yeah. one is destroyed. So the Second Temple is uh, it's started by Zerubbabel. Yeah, we it talked takes... about that a little bit last week too in the Leviticus podcast. Or wait, no. Not Leviticus, but yeah, we did talk about Super Bowl last week, I think. What did we talk about? Oh, we talked about the sacrificial system. That's right. That makes so, sense. That's why yep. we would talk about it. Yep. Um, so, but it takes a few generations to go. Um, eventually it's completed. Uh, we don't know exactly who the leader is when, when it's completed, but we see like in the writings of Haggai, for instance, or Haggai, he's encouraging the Jews to continue to build the temple. Yeah. And then that's it. That's where it closes out. And then the if, end. If, if all we know about history is what we read in the Bible, it's like, and then this happens. Years later, the Romans are in charge, and then the Pharisees and the yeah. Sabbath like, wait, whoa, where did this come yeah. from? So that's kind of what we're talking about today is, okay, so what happens after Malachi? And I, and I, I will say, like, it can sound like just kind of, well, why does this matter? Because it's not in the Bible. It is important to know because it gives us a deeper understanding of the New Testament, particularly yeah. what's going Gospels. on contextually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that you can pick up the Gospels and read them with no... Um, with no context of history and it'll be life-changing and it'll be beautiful. And it's, it's wholly um, able to turn our hearts to, to God. So mm-hmm. I don't want to like make it out like you, you need this, yeah. but on the other hand, our understanding of what happened in the gospels is much deeper and much more rich when yeah. we understand the history that's behind all of it. And the thing is that even in, in the podcast today, like we're, we're just scratching the surface of it. The, the hope is that it kind of creates an intrigue and a curiosity for you to kind of do a little bit more deep dive into it. Uh, but it is, it is that, you know, the gospel is life changing apart from the context that it's, it's been written in, but the, the gospel becomes even more vibrant when you put it in the context it's written in. And so that, that's the goal. That's the hope in, in, a, in a conversation like this today to where we're able to, to kind of assess and see the buildup to Matthew one. Um, that's the hope. So. Yep. Uh, so our first section here is called the Hellenization of Israel. Um, Hellenism is a fancy word um, that basically just means becoming more Greek. Um, I think I have the word here. Uh, it's Hella, Hellenism, Hellenismos. I should have learned how to pronounce that. Uh, but it literally means imitation of Greek is kind of what is what it translates to. So we'll talk about that here That's in a second. That's funny. Uh, so I was trying to find the word in your notes. I see it now. 
the first major event of the intertestamental, intertestamental period is the fall of Persia to Greece, um, specifically to Alexander the Great. So this is my favorite time of history too, by the way. It's really, it's really. Fun. I remember taking this class in in like world history, but like this time, like. With Alexander the Great and all the other things going on, this was one of my favorite parts of, of world history. Yeah. So. so the Greek states are, they're just that, right? They're, they're, they're independent city states. There's not this unified nation known as Greece. Um, and Persia kind of is the ones who force them to unify because there's this great outside threat. Mm-hmm. So if you ever heard of the Battle of Marathon, uh, this is happening during biblical times, which is kind of cool to think about. Um, I think it's... Darius, who is the king. That one I, I that one I very much could be wrong on. I won't be wrong on the second king because I made sure to look it up. But um, that's also where we get the idea because after the Athenians win at Marathon and drive back the Greeks, someone runs back. It's 26 point... I forgot how long a marathon is. Is it 26.3 miles? 26.2. 26.2. Oh, no, one. 26.1. One. There you go. Uh, he runs back and then he dies. No, he shouts Nike, which means victory. And Nike. just, and just, just like that, it. we get uh, two of the uh, American institutions of marathon running and <laughs> Nike sports. Uh, and they go hand story. in hand. Uh, but later on, uh, we also get the famous story of the Battle of Thermopylae, which is where 300 Spartans and some other guys that we don't mention, so sucks to be this them, is Sparta. Uh, hold off the Persian army for a uh, significant period of time. It's a few days until uh, they are eventually defeated, and then the Persian king is driven back at the Battle of Salamis. What you may not know is that the king who is of Persia is Xerxes the first, Esther's husband. Esther's husband. So if you ever watch the movie 300, which is not historically accurate. Not at all. Uh, and there's some inappropriate stuff in there, so you might not watch it with kids. Also true. Uh, just don't watch it at all. But yeah, the character who's like, I am a generous god is, is Xerxes the first. That's the, that's the guy. So... Uh, a little yeah. inflated ego, uh, a lot inflated ego, but... Also true, but it connects. So yeah. that's, that is Esther's husband. So when we think of... Uh, Xerxes in the Bible, it's also important to realize, like, I don't know, we kind of characterize him as like this like fat slobbering king who's like just the worst. And here's the deal, doesn't treat his wives very well. And so he is a little bit the worst, but um, he's also like this intimidating warrior king Mm -hmm. who is part of all this. So there you go. Um, And knowing that helps kind of enhance the conversation Esther's facing and the whole idea, like, I'm not supposed to be before him unless he calls for me. I could die, (laughs) like, because he's brutal. He's not, he's not the most gracious, loving guy, but... right. it, yeah. So just, it, again, knowing these things helps kind of enhance the conversations that we're seeing biblical pictures and stories come to life in. So, Absolutely. Um, so in 334 BC, Alexander the Great would conquer Persia um, on his way to conquering most of the known world at the time. So Alexander's, it's a really weird thing with Alexander's empire because it's, it essentially dies with him and mm-hmm. he died at like 30 something. Yeah. So he, it, he it, died young. it did not last very long. Which but, in and of itself is remarkable because it was such a massive like overhaul, like he took over everything. So he went from Macedonia is where he's born is where he starts. He unifies Greece and he makes it to India is kind it's of insane. the, it's, it's a, that is a huge chunk of And he land. died in his thirties. Like yep. it's just crazy. So, um, so after his death, the empire is divided among his generals. Um, and so Israel comes under the control of the Seleucid dynasty. So it's one of the, uh, one of the generals who is kind of taking over that general area. So, and this is where we'll talk about Hellenism for a second. One of the lasting legacies of Alexander's short-lived empire is what is known as Hellenism. And essentially, it's this idea that Greek culture would become the dominant culture of most of the uh, of the Western world, we'll say. Mm-hmm. So obviously, like in China, I don't think it really penetrates there that much in kind of the, the Far East. But when we're talking about Europe, Western Asia, and North Africa, 
Greek culture is the main culture. And we see this even with the Romans later, yeah. where the Romans don't really even try to fight this. Like they still speak Greek in, in a lot of the areas. And the Romans even really adopt a lot of their culture to basically be Greek culture. Mm-hmm. If they just put some stuff under different names. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting they to see. They put their Roman flair on it, but it, it's still exactly. Greek Like culture. Zeus, who's that? Jupiter, on the other hand, let me tell you about him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's just this, it's this lasting legacy of even though the empire itself doesn't necessarily go on that long, we see this just massive influx of Greek culture and this massive influx also of learning. Like you have the, the Library of Alexandria. Yep. Um, we also forget that Alexander was a student of Aristotle. So like this line of philosophers goes Socrates who trains Plato, Plato who trains Aristotle, and then Aristotle trains Alexander the Great. And Alexander kind of takes this philosophy and just pushes it out there. So there is yeah. this kind of this massive cultural shift from anything that had been there before. And also in Israel, because now at this point, Israel is under the control of the Seleucids and their Greek culture, they probably did not have very much contact with it before this, um, or at the very least not lasting contact in the way of like, uh, I'm trying to think of how to say it, but basically there's other cultures that come into America, for instance, but we don't necessarily adopt their culture. Yeah. We just think like, oh, that's nice. They're not as, they're not as drastically influenced. They're present. It's present. It's happening, but it, it's not, it's not as been as influential in the, in the culture and society of exactly until now. And then similar to English today, uh, Greek became the lingua franca of its time, which Ooh, is just fancy a, word. it's just a fancy term, meaning the common language of the people. So like today, um, if you're doing business internationally, it's basically you should know English is kind of the idea of, of, of it. Um, so back then it was Greek. So even in, when the Romans were in control and they spoke Latin, Greek is still the, the most well-known language of the time. And then eventually Latin would become the lingua franca, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but after after the fall of Rome, <laughs> Latin is the, is the language that unites most of Europe mm-hmm. um, it, as far as like uh, when you're writing um, religious works and also scholarly works, most of them are written in Latin. So there you go. Uh, eventually, the king Antiochus the Fourth, or Antiochus the Fourth, depending on which pronunciation you want to use, both of those could be wrong. Uh, he would try to continue uh, to try to force continued Hellenize. Helen, oh my gosh, I can't read the sentence. Hellenizing. <laughs> yep, policies, uh, including defiling the temple. This is the famous one we talk about, where it's basically he. Not only does he try to sacrifice unclean animals, uh, which is like pigs. He also sacrifices to Zeus specifically, which is just like, it's a double, double whammy. The Jews are like, okay, get out of here, guy. Yeah. And then we get one of my favorite intertest- intertestamental stories, the Maccabees, uh, starting with Mattathias, which is a great name. I don't know why that one's not. Um, Listen, when you have kids, you can use it. Yeah. Shout out to Matthias, really close to that name. Yeah. And he's a good guy. Uh, but Mattathias is just such a great name. I don't know why it's not in the, the modern uh, context here. Uh, and eventually it reaches the pinnacle with Judah slash Judas Maccabee. Um, Maccabee is also a word meaning the hammer, which is freaking sick. <laughs> like, it's just so cool. So uh, there you go. And also that, that does bring... Matthias in... Maccabee. There's your, there's your son's name whenever you have a boy. There you go. Um, so it does bring up an important point too, that one of the things that's confusing about the New Testament, and I don't really care for, and I wish that we would kind of fix it in the English translations, is how the names change. So Judas is Judah. Um, so mm. when you hear of Judas Iscariot, his name I ever is... I knew that. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's one of those... Fun, and Jude is the same name too. So the Jude to Judas, I think has changed just because like, you know, like like Judas kind of, he ruined that name for people. Like you, yes. you don't see many Adolfs in history right now. And so you don't see many Judases come after Judas Iscariot. It's just, it's just kind of one of those things where he ruined it. Uh, but yeah, it is Judah. Um, for instance, James is Jacob 
which is kind of an interesting one. Yeah. Um, Jesus is Joshua. There's a bunch of names like that that just kind of get shifted in the New Testament. But yeah. anyway, so there you go. Um, but yeah, Judah Maccabee kind of and that's leads. because of the that's because of the Greek part of it, right? Isn't that because right? So that, it's kind of taking the Greek form yeah, took of the, Hebrew, the names. Yeah, it took the Hebrew Aramaic and they, the Septuagint was the Old Testament translation in Greek. So I think that was a big influence too. It's just the nature mm-hmm. of the Greek influence, which we see that too. So which yeah, which back then I told totally get. I just think like now we actually have like the man, enough manuscripts to look through it and be like, okay, like we actually know what these names are. So it's just kind of confusing to have it be like. But then, I don't know, maybe at this point, it's more confusing to change them all back now because now it's just like, now it's it's been ruined for everyone. Um, but from this point, uh, so Judah Maccabee leads this big revolt. Um, eventually it doesn't end, but it kind of reaches its pinnacle when he comes into Jerusalem. Uh, they retake the temple, which is what Hanukkah is celebrating. We've talked about that really recently, I think, mm-hmm. so we don't need to go super into it. Um, but it's a great, yeah, great celebration of God's perseverance. And then Israel actually enjoys independence for close to a hundred years. What? I think it's like it's 90 something years that they, uh, that they rule themselves. And this would be, it's really sad to think about, but I believe this is the last time the Jews ruled themselves until 1940 something when the state of Israel is founded. So I think it's 48 hmm. is when that happened. So for almost 2000 years or over 2000 years, I'm trying to think, do the math in my head. Uh, the Jews did not rule themselves or Israel did not have its own control. So there you go. That's crazy. Um, anyway, it's during this point, and this is our second section. This is one that's I think where it's really important to understand. This is where we see the rise of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And again, like if you, if you just stop, re- if you just read through the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, you just hear about these Pharisees and yeah. Sadducees. And you have no idea where they came from. They're not in the Old Testament. So what's the deal here? Um, and so there's three main religious groups in Israel during this time. Uh, one of them we'll talk about, but they don't play a huge role in the New Testament, so not as much. But there's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes are the other one. Now, the Essenes are really important because they are the sect that left and went to Qumran, and that's where you get the Dead Sea Scrolls. So mm-hmm. it's they're important for a different yeah, which way, are, which are a big deal too. Which is one of just the like. Did we ever do a Dead Sea Scrolls? We did. Okay, we did. I, I remember we, did I we talked year. about it and we pushed it back and back. So yeah, yeah. Because one of those. So go back and listen to that one because you'll see a lot of the influence of the Essenes. Yeah, it's 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 the Dead Sea Scrolls are one of the biggest blessings to biblical archaeology yeah. and also just to our faith of knowing that like. Yeah, these really are old. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's really cool, and uh, can be trusted. Yep. Uh, so the Pharisees and Sadducees functioned somewhat like political parties, um, but there were also major doctrinal differences between the two. And I think this is an important thing for us as modern Americans to understand because we have this we have this idea um, that church and state should be separate. And so the whole point is that the government, um, for the most part, does not tell the church what to do. And the church does not tell the government what to do. They kind of exist as their own entities that are allowed to do um, what they think is right. Mm-hmm. Whereas in ancient times and even in Israel, that is not the case. So the, the, the religious leadership is also the political leadership. It's a very new idea yeah. that those things would be separated. Um, and it's really kind of born out of um, the Reformation almost, where you, you go from having like this one church to all of a sudden being split into a lot of different belief systems. And at that point, it almost becomes... Um, untenable to have one of those belief systems take political power because then you just oppress the other ones, which is what happens like with the Puritans who left yeah. um, 
uh, England, for instance, and came to the Americas. So not that that's like, I don't know why we got on that tangent, but we did. I just like talking about history. So we, uh, <laughs> the Pharisees were the most influential of these groups um, and also the most resistant to Hellenism. Um, so you can see this in the story of give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? So when the Pharisees come, they say like, well, what do you say you should do with this? The, what they're kind of doing is like, well, hey, listen, like who is Caesar to rule over us? And Jesus kind of sidesteps it. And he's not, yeah. not even sidesteps, he's in their face. He's yeah. just like, listen, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, but they were also more open to the expanse of Jewish canon beyond the Pentateuch. Um, so the history, wisdom, uh, and the prophets, the Pharisees were very much consider, considered that scripture. Um, however, this tendency also led to expanding beyond what we now call the Old Testament. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not just that they believed in the canonical Old Testament as we see it today, but there's a ton of other tradition that we see arise with the Pharisees. And this is where we get, I I wish I would have brought up, brought up these notes in, but I remember years ago, I did like a fun um, like top 10 weird rules of the Pharisees for youth. And it was just like, some of the things is um, like, you can only move a piece of furniture. I think the, it was six feet. And then after that it was on the Sabbath. And yes. then after that it was considered work. And there's one about like how, um, like how deep of a ditch an animal can fall into that you can rescue it <laughs> or you have to wait. Yep. So it's that kind of stuff where it's just like the Pharisees really went, they went nuts yeah. with uh, um what's called the traditions of the elders. Yeah. The, the power got to their heads. Yeah, the little, influence and the, and the political side got to their heads. A little bit. Um, and then what's interesting, and I think we've talked about this before, but what's interesting with the Pharisees is they, contrary to how we view them today, they were the popular party of the people. Mm-hmm. So we, when we use the word Pharisee today, we think really aloof. It's a, it's a negative connotation. Right. Um, we think really aloof, really judgmental. And then we think people, usually we think of people in power. Uh, as being like, oh, that guy's just a Pharisee. Um, but back then it was like, they I mean, they were in power and they were aloof, but they were definitely the popular party of the people. Yeah. Um, the Sadducees were the more aristocratic party um, that also had power in Israel during the time of Christ. And so like the Essenes did not really have that much power, which is why we're not really talking about them as much because they're, I don't think... Th- they're, I don't think they're even mentioned in the New Testament. If they are, it's very in passing. Yeah, very simple if they are. Um. The major difference from the Pharisees was the rejection of what Josephus called the traditions of the elders. And Josephus, if you don't know, is a Jewish historian um, in the late first century AD. Um, And he's responsible for, I mean, a lot of what we know of of Jewish culture outside of the Bible is is Josephus. It's, it's It's a really good, he's a really good resource to affirm a lot of what the Bible alludes to and tells. Mm -hmm. Uh, Historically speaking, that's not a religious document by any means. So, right. Uh, so there's some debate as to whether this means that the Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch or if this means they rejected the expanded oral history of the Pharisees, um, only. Hmm. So it's, I tend to think that they only stuck with the first five books of the law and considered everything else non-canonical. But again, that's just, that's very open-handed. Like we don't really know, uh, one way or the other, but no matter what they were, they were much more constricted with the idea of what they considered scripture yeah. to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were very much the oral traditions of the elders were also considered um, binding by God. Yeah. So there you go. No, and that, and I, I would agree with that too. Um, I think, I think a lot of what they held to was the Pentateuch because that was like the law of Moses. It was, Moses was a very prominent figure in, in oh, yeah. Jewish and Israelite history. Um, and so there, the, you know, the when, yeah. So anyways, all that to say, I think that there is that, um, holding very tightly to the Pentateuch, the first five books, um, and, and very suspect and questioning anything added to it. Right. That's where I land at least. Yeah. 
And then the the Sadducees also rejected the idea of the resurrection. Which is sad. This was, I remember a stupid song, which is why they're so sad, you see. (laughs) 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 I've never heard of this. That's awesome. Um, I mean, it's, it's. Being in, in a Christian doctrine, a Christian like faith, like that is that is a big part of our faith is the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of of us, man. And so, yeah. um, it's it's kind of a a, a, sad, a sad existence to not believe in that. So right. So yeah, that's the that's a big difference, and we'll see it come up. And that's the one that's mentioned the most in mm-hmm. the New Testament. You'll see all, a lot of times there'll be in the Sadducees, comma who did not believe in the resurrection, comma did such and such. So uh, there you go, and then. Like we said before, understanding the differences between these parties helps to see what a big deal Jesus was yeah. um, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other mm-hmm. and they united to take down Jesus. So it kind of shows, um, and it's funny because for different reasons, like the Pharisees hated Jesus because um, they thought his claims of being the son of God and the Messiah were heretical. And the Sadducees hated Jesus mostly because he was going to rock the boat and they kind of wanted things just to kind of stay as they are. Uh, They had a good setup with Rome. Everything was going just fine. And so for completely different reasons, the Pharisees and Sadducees both wanted Jesus dead. And I think it kind of also, it's something we can think about today too. Like there's a, there's a sort of religious, um, I'm trying to think rigorism is not a word I'm trying to, like stiffness. I don't know what the right word would be for that, but the, what, what the Pharisees just like kind of clenching so tightly, mm-hmm. not being open to any sort of revelation from God and not being open to their interpretation of scripture being wrong that lead, that led them to reject Christ. And then there's also this idea of, and it's funny cause we're doing a, a discipleship class on James, but the uh, last night you talked about, cause I was gone for my anniversary, but you talked Wait, about- it's your anniversary, I'm just I kidding. Uh, but you talked about this idea of, you know, loving the world. And that's yeah. kind of what the Sadducees were. Like they, they loved the status quo. They loved the setup. They didn't want anything to rock it. Even the son of God coming was like, now, like that's not really what yeah. we're into. So there you go. All right. Now to our final section. Hey, for the first time we were to give a shout out to the, discipleship class instead of because in in the discipleship class we're shouting out the there's always a shameless plug for the podcast that's true uh and c who's one of our discipleship uh attendees i guess if you will has now started listening to the podcast too so thank you c hello c uh so our last section is called (laughs) rome and the herodians um so this is going to take us right up to the birth of christ so in 64 bc the roman general pompey which if you may have heard of him he was buds with julius caesar until he wasn't uh conquered judea and israel came under the control of the roman empire and this would be the political situation at the birth of uh, the birth of jesus Mm -hmm. so rome installed different publicly public, different puppet leaders uh, over the years. And then eventually, and I thought, I did not know this. I thought this was really interesting. Eventually, Herod the Great would pitch the idea of being king to Octavian and Antony, um, which if you don't know who they are, Octavian is better known as Caesar Augustus. And then Antony is is Mark Antony. He's the guy who died with Cleopatra. Um, Also, just like Pompey was friends with Julius Caesar till he wasn't, uh, Antony was friends with Octavian until he wasn't. So that's kind of just, that's kind of the way Roman history goes though, is they're buds and then one of them kills the other one. Um, but all this happens, Herod is, I believe he was in line for the throne, but there was a bunch of different things that were happening, some political turmoil, and he essentially convinces uh, Octavian and Antony to support his claim. So there you go. Um, Herod, I think of being very similar to Ahab. Um, if you remember on our character episode on Ahab, we talked about how from the outside looking in, most historians would consider Ahab a good king. 
Um, from a biblical perspective, he was not. But from a historical perspective, you look at his accomplishments, you're like, oh, yeah, he's fine. And it's kind of the same thing with Herod. Um, Herod tried to bring unity to the ideas of Hellenism and Jewish culture. So he's kind of essentially saying the writing on the walls and he's saying like, hey, like this is the way it is. We need to continue to move forward in culture there. Um, he helped to avoid massive death from a famine uh, by importing uh, Egyptian grain. And then side note, it's always Egypt that say, that bails out Israel <laughs> with famine. So Thank you, Egypt. It's just one of those things. Uh, but he even used his own money. So it was uh, money from the, the treasury coffers, but he also used his own money to make sure that there was enough food to feed the people. Um, and he began to rebuild the temple and restored it to its former glory. So, and this is where I think it can get a little bit confusing because the second temple is oftentimes called Herod's temple, but Herod's temple is not a third temple that gets built. Um, so the temple that is started by Zerubbabel is the second temple and Herod kind of takes it over. Yeah. He puts the finishing touches on it. So it's my temple it, now. Yeah. He puts the finishing touches on it as it were, but it's not like a whole new building, like as opposed to... Solomon's temple and the second temple are different buildings. Yeah. So there you go. Um, but despite all this, many of the Jews hated Herod. Um, so he began to crush the old Hasmonean aristocracy. I realized I forgot to talk about this during the Maccabee section. The Hasmoneans is the uh, the dynasty that rules after the Maccabees take over. So it's the Judah Maccabee and then his sons and his sons. And then I think there's a fourth generation. And then I think it falls after that. So, uh, but there is still this Hasmonean aristocracy. So these descendants of the Maccabees who are very much in political power in Israel. Herod's married to one of them. Uh, his his wife is a Hasmonean, but he begins to kind of push their influence down because as, you know, we you don't get a nickname like the Hammer without, <laughs> without wanting to separate uh, from the Romans. And that's what a lot of the Hasmoneans wanted. So uh, there you go. And then you can see this dynamic at play within Jesus' disciples. Uh, so Matthew is pretty cool with foreign cultures. We can in infer that because he's a tax collector and you don't really join the employ of being a tax collector unless you're thinking like, yeah, Rome's fine. Um, and then there's famously Simon the Zealot yep. who is on the exact opposite end where he wants um, he wants Israel to fully separate from Rome. And then you would imagine most of the other disciples are somewhere, somewhere in the middle of that. Some, mm -hmm. some are maybe pretty happy with the status quo. Some are really hoping that Jesus is like the political Messiah to start off who will free Israel from Rome and they'll be independent once again. Which so. is interesting even to see like how po politics began to influence uh, a Christian perspective. Most of what the Christians were anticipating when the Messiah came back is he would usher in a new kingdom. And based upon their experience with the way like the Pharisees and Sadducees have began this political influence as well. It shows a different era going back to the conversation yep. about separation of church and state. Uh, it's just how the, the culture of the time, the society of the time was structured and worked. Well, um, Judah Maccabee is just this massive hero mm -hmm. at this time. And so I, th I'm, I, I, I haven't looked this up, so I, I could be wrong, but I would imagine there's a lot of people who thought he was the Messiah when he leads them um, out of the rule of the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And when the Romans take back over, it makes sense that that is why the Jews are expecting that kind of leader, which is funny because when you read the Old Testament, you're kind of wondering like, well, I don't get this idea of like the Messiah being this like political war leader. Yeah. But when you look at the history of it and you said like, they're, they're very much looking at like, I want Judah Maccabee back. I want someone back who's going to unite Israel. Yeah. Where's the hammer? And yeah, we're going to throw the Romans out and we're going to rule again. And that's where people are want. That's what people are wanting Jesus to be. So it's an, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. Um, 
Let's see, where am I at here? Okay, he also installed the Sadducees, uh, this is Herod, uh, as the priestly elite, which was an unpopular choice given the popularity of the Pharisees. So again, remember the Pharisees are the party of the people. The Pharisees are much more in line with the, uh, the Hasmoneans where they're thinking, I want to separate out from Rome. The Sadducees want the status quo. And so it makes sense that Herod would install the Sadducees into the priestly, mm-hmm. into priestly power instead of the Pharisees. But personally, Herod was a tyrant. Um, He's, he's, he's not a good person at no. all. Um, he murders his first wife uh, or he has her put to death. So I guess it's legal. So I, I don't think it's murder, but still not a nice thing to do. Yeah. Um, and then he kills three of his sons. He kills his first two sons when he puts his first wife to death. And then right before he dies, he kills a third son because he just like doesn't like him. He's a jerk. So because Harry's a jerk. Um, and of course, this... Also, it's it's good to mention uh, he also kills like the children of Bethlehem. Yeah. That's a biblical story. So we hear about that happening in the New Testament. So it doesn't quite fit into the New Testament. That's why period. Jesus and his family had to run. This was at the time where Jesus was born and they left yep. because of after he was born. And where did they go? To Egypt. Dude, it's always Egypt. Always Listen, Egypt. Listen, Egypt is, is, they're good people, okay? Yeah, apparently. I mean, other, other than the trying to kill and enslave the Jews, they're really, they're really good people. This is going to sound so nerdy. I just got done playing Assassin's Creed Origins. Nice. Which is about the Egyptian times. And so all of the, like Pompey and Cleopatra and all of that. Uh, oh, is that all in the game? Yeah, it's all in the game. Nice. It's, it's kind of a fun, it's a, it's a fun version of the game. But um, yeah, it's, Egypt, the Egyptians were great, man. Like they were... They were generous. They were careful. Like they cared about people and Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed Israel. You heard it here. You heard it here first. Origins is the name of it. Ubisoft. And they even say like they take historical events and they put their own spin on it. So it's not really an accurate game, but historically you see the characters play out. So And that is, uh, that wraps it up for uh, the intertestamental period. Yeah, it leads us to Jesus where he's born. Herod shows up and starts putting children of Bethlehem to dead. Death be dead to yep. death because he was afraid that they're going to take over his kingdom. Like he was a, he didn't want anybody to take the kingdom because that's also in in the uh, the Jewish world. Like they were talking about the coming Messiah, they're anticipating the Messiah, right? And so Herod knew that if there's a king coming from the Israelite people, the Jewish people, that he was probably going to be overthrown, and he didn't want that. Herod knows what happened to the Seleucid kings mm-hmm. and the rebellion of the Maccabees, and that's, that's very much probably how he feels himself. So how do I get rid of? How do I get rid of any threat? I kill off the, the, the young men. I kill off the boys. Yep. So hopefully that was helpful to you. Um, like I said, I just think There's it's a ton of information there too. Right. <laughs> I think it's just, it's just good to have a, uh, it's good to have a picture of what happened because it helps feed our understanding of the New Testament um, so much more when yeah. we actually get an idea of. And hopefully when you turn the page from Malachi to the New Testament, you'll begin to think back to some of these things right. that, that leads us to the New Testament because the world did not stop in that in that 400 years. Um, it was probably some of the most, I think it was a lot, like some of the most things had happened in the 400 years that was not written about in scripture. And that's pointed, that's part of it. The, yeah. Those things did not point to Christ. They were not you know, Christian based or whatever. The whole point of the New Testament, the, the whole point of the Bible is, is this idea and revelation of who God is, his love for humanity and the journey to, to redeem humanity. So, And the, the other... I wasn't planning on talking about this, but the other thing I think is important to recognize about it too is how God used what happened to further his kingdom. Um, Because there's two big things that happened during this time that make the spread of the gospel way easier. Number one, everyone starts speaking Greek. Mm -hmm. So now- Universal language. Yep. So now instead of having having, uh, these disciples who speak Hebrew and going into all these countries, now they speak Aramaic, 
they also speak Greek, and they're able to go to most of the world and have conversations about who Jesus is. So that would have been impossible even a few centuries earlier. And the Roman road system yep. was huge for being able to have Christianity yeah. spread because now you could just go from city to city to city to city. They weren't nearly as dangerous. Rome was kind of keeping things under control. And so the disciples were able to sp- – Christianity spread. For, for those of you who like they haven't looked in the history of this, which I, I just bought a book on it. I'm really excited to read it. But um, Christianity spread incredibly rapidly – and not through war, which is interesting because most of the religions that you see that spread rapidly is because they're like, well, let's go conquer the world. Yep, take, and, over, take over and force you to believe the way I believe. Yeah, exactly. Like when the when the Muslims leave Arabia and conquer North Africa, it wasn't this like, hey, like Muhammad is great. It's like, hey, we're going to kill you. And now you're all Muslims. It's like, oh, okay, well. Yeah, you have a choice. Right, you, you say yes, you believe or you die. There Good you choice. go. Uh, Christianity does not spread that way. No. Um, you, you see it happen. Which is incredible. Yeah, you see it happen later in history, um, particularly like medieval Crusades. times and go, yeah, and Crusades and stuff like that. But And that's not that's not a very bright spot in Christian history, just saying. No, but it, at, the, at the birth of Christianity, it is not spread through war. It is spread really through, and eventually it becomes the dominant religion of Rome. In spite of the fact that it was actively oppressed yeah, for so right. much of its history. It's 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 really crazy when when you look into it. So yeah. and a lot of that I don't want to say it wouldn't have been possible because God can do everything, but yeah. God definitely used the universe the universality of Greek language and the and the Roman road system and protection system to help the gospel spread. Yep. So it's interesting. All right. Well, that's the last thing we'll say about the intertestamental period. Uh, uh, Before we get to our question today, we just want to remind you all to leave a review, uh, preferably of the five-star kind. It really helps get the podcast out there to more people and grow this community of people uh, who are reading the Bible together. Yeah. So for our question today, we have this. Hi, both. Uh, A question for Let's Read the Bible. In Matthew 3, John baptizes people. This would be John the Baptist. Uh, including Jesus. I appreciate he provides an explanation for his actions, but where did the practice originate? It isn't in the Old Testament, but it seems like the practice is accepted as a thing to do, implying tradition or common practice. Great, great question. And it also kind of fits into our discussion of intertestamental period time, but not quite as much as we may think it is. So we're going to exaggerate and make it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So it's an interesting question because I think that baptism has taken on such a different meaning Mm -hmm. from what it was originally understood as and what when John the Baptist was doing his work, um, what that was understand, what what, what, what he was asking people to do, if that makes sense. So ceremonial washing had been a part of Jewish law and culture since the days of Moses. I'm sure when we did our episode on Leviticus, we talked about ceremonial washing because it's like a bunch of the laws is like, go and be clean. Uh, like when Jesus heals the lepers, I believe they have to go present themselves to the priest and then they are ceremonially washed clean. Um, you see it with Naaman, for instance. So there's this whole idea of... See with the lepers. You see right. It, yeah. There's this whole idea of water being a purifier and obviously not literally, literally right? Because it's, it's, the, um, it's the heart behind it yeah. towards God that is the actual purifying act, but the water is kind of symbolic of it. So when John is baptizing people, he's essentially using this... Jewish tradition of ceremonial washing, but he's changing it up a bit to where he's saying this is explicitly for the repentance of sin and the acceptance of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's where it's a little bit different than maybe some of the ceremonial washing we've seen, although a lot of the ceremonial washing is also because of penance for sin. So it's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but as time goes on, baptism shifts. And this isn't a bad thing because I think this is what this is what Christianity demands. But today, when we think of baptism, it has almost no connection to the ceremonial washing of the Old Testament because really it's replaced. It hasn't replaced that. It's almost replaced circumcision, um, which hmm. is a weird thing to say. But um, in the Old Testament, circumcision was the marker that you were one of God's people. Um, in the New Testament and in the modern church, baptism is that marker, right? So when you become a Christian, you're baptized. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this, it's this marker of, I am a Christ follower. I'm publicly de declaring my love for Christ. That That's kind of what it is. And so, and that's it's, uh, that's also where you get, so as um, our church, we're assemblies of God. So we hold to uh, um, baptism upon confession of faith. So basically it's like, it's not a thing that you do with babies. It's a thing that you do with children and adults, but that's how people get to the idea of infant baptism is because it, in their minds, it replaces circumcision completely. And therefore, since um, babies were circumcised to show that they belong to the family of God, so children also are baptized. So that's kind of where you, it's one of those open-handed issues where yeah. we hold the one thing, but you can, you can absolutely be a Christian and hold to the other as well. So anyway. There you go. That's my answer. I don't know if you have anything to add there. No, I, I think it's, I mean, look at look at the purpose of baptism. It really is this idea of, uh, you know, and I've, I remember here in, in, in baptism, when I was learning how to quote unquote baptize people, we actually had a class called Pastoral Techniques that we actually practiced baptizing each other. Oh, um, never so took I got that baptized class. multiple times in my life. Um, but it is, it, one of the things that the, uh, our, our professor would say um, and Dr. Shannon, I'm sorry that I was so resistant to saying it this way, but it, it is this picture of when you go into the water, you're, you're coming out clean and purified. Um, you're, the sin is gone. The sin is in the water. Death, the symbolism of going in the water is death. Being raised out of the water is life. Uh, and so that is the picture of baptism. Uh, and so it does have this ceremonial washing. It has this purification process. And it's not like there's something magical about the water, but it, for baptism, it's this public declaration and, and, and confession of faith. So when John the Baptist was using it, he was using it for an alignment purpose. He was using it for uh, a, a symbol and a sign, you know, significant piece to we're not, we're not following the old ways and the old faith anymore. We're following the, the truth of the Messiah and the coming Messiah. Um, and we're aligning our lives with that truth. And so the, the purpose of it, they both, you know, accomplish the same thing to a degree. And we see the baptism take this form and become this demonstrative big piece right. um, that, that accomplishes what ceremonial washing intended to do as well. It just becomes more public, um, which is what faith in Christ is meant to do anyway. So, yeah, I would agree. And th those are those are the thoughts that I have with it. So Yeah, that's a great good question. It. I'm bummed I never took a baptism class now. So there Yeah, you. This, is, this is why we just did baptism. This is why like I would tell people when we were standing, you spread your legs a little bit so you can move your leg and put the weight. Uh, put the weight on one leg so you go down with them so you don't actually go down into the water with them. So Who just knew? a great support. So things you learn, man, in class. Dude, I, thank you, Northwest. Last, thank you, Dr. Chandler. This last uh, baptism sorry, Sunday was, jerk. was my first time baptizing people. So just thrown into the fire. No yeah. cl no class. And, and a hot tub. 
and a hot portable tub. hot tub. It was weird. Uh, on our knees, uh, and the, the people were sitting down with cross-legged, crisscross applesauce. Oh, COVID, how you've uh, made things so fun. But it was still a fun Sunday where we baptized 15 people, so Absolutely. I'm not going to complain about it. Well, on that note, we'll go ahead and wrap it up yes. for uh, this episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, just remember that we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can check out uh, our new blog, for instance. It's yeah, up on just, our website. Just launched that one. Yeah, just launched two weeks ago. Uh, that's up on our website, grove.church, as well as any past messages. Uh, and then also as a reminder, if this uh, if the ministry of the Grove Church has blessed you in any way and you would like to financially contribute to help us keep going, uh, that would be awesome. And you can do that on our website, grove.church. Just click on the gift button. Uh, but with that being said, see you all later. Yeah, have a great day. Happy anniversary, Evan. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>